Section 8 of The American Crisis by Thomas Paine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Ernst Schnell. The Crisis Number 6. Published in Philadelphia, October 20th, 1778. To the Earl of Carlisle, General Clinton, and William Eden, Esquires, British Commissioners at New York. There is a dignity in the warm passions of a Whig, which is never to be found in the cold malice of a Tory. In the one, nature is only heated, in the other she is poisoned. The instant the former has it in his power to punish, he feels a disposition to forgive. But the canine venom in the latter knows no relief but revenge. This general distinction will, I believe, apply in all cases, and suits as well the meridian of England as America. As I presume your last proclamation will undergo the strictures of other pens, I shall confine my remarks to only a few parts thereof. All that you have said might have been comprised in half the compass. It is tedious and unmeaning, and only a repetition of your former follies, with here and there an offensive aggravation. Your cargo of pardons will have no market. It is unfashionable to look at them, even speculation is at an end. They have become a perfect drug and no way calculated for the climate. In the course of your proclamation you say, quote, The policy as well as the benevolence of Great Britain have thus far checked the extremes of war, when they tended to distress a people still considered as their fellow subjects and to desolate a country shortly to become again a source of mutual advantage. End quote. What you mean by, quote, the benevolence of Great Britain, end quote, is to me inconceivable. To put a plain question, do you consider yourselves men or devils? For until this point is settled, no determinate sense can be put upon the expression. You have already equaled and in many cases excelled the savages of either Indies and if you have yet a cruelty in store, you must have imported it, unmixed with every human material, from the original warehouse of hell. To the interposition of Providence and her blessings on our endeavors, and not to British benevolence, we are indebted for the short chain that limits your ravages. Remember you do not, at this time, command a foot of land on the continent of America. Staten Island, York Island, a small part of Long Island and Rhode Island, circumscribe your power, and even those you hold at the expense of the West Indies. To avoid a defeat or prevent a desertion of your troops, you have taken up your quarters in holes and corners of inaccessible security, and in order to conceal what every one can perceive, you now endeavor to impose your weakness upon us for an act of mercy. If you think to succeed by such shadowy devices, you are but infants in the political world, you have the ABC of stratagem yet to learn, and are wholly ignorant of the people you have to contend with. Like men in a state of intoxication, you forget that the rest of the world have eyes, and that the same stupidity which conceals you from yourselves exposes you to their satire and contempt. The paragraph which I have quoted stands as an introduction to the following. Quote, but when that country, America, professes the unnatural design not only of estranging herself from us, but of mortgaging herself and her resources to our enemies, the whole contest is changed, 
and the question is how far Great Britain may, by every means in her power, destroy or render useless a connection contrived for her ruin and the aggrandizement of France. Under such circumstances, the laws of self-preservation must direct the conduct of Britain, and if the British colonies are to become an accession to France, will direct her to render that accession of as little avail as possible to her enemy. End quote. I consider you in this declaration like madmen biting at the hour of death. It contains likewise a fraudulent meanness, for in order to justify a barbarous conclusion you have advanced a false position. The treaty we have formed with France is open, noble, and generous. It is true policy founded on sound philosophy and neither a surrender or mortgage, as you would scandalously insinuate. I have seen every article and speak from positive knowledge. In France we have found an affectionate friend and faithful ally. In Britain we have found nothing but tyranny, cruelty, and infidelity. But the happiness is that the mischief you threaten is not in your power to execute, and if it were, the punishment would return upon you in a tenfold degree. The humanity of America has hitherto restrained her from acts of retaliation, and the affection she retains for many individuals in England, who have fed closed and comforted her prisoners, has to the present day warded off her resentment, and operated as a screen to the whole. But even these considerations must cease, when national objects interfere and oppose them. Repeated aggravations will provoke a retort, and policy justify the measure. We mean now to take you seriously up on your own ground and principle, and as you do, so shall you be done by. You ought to know, gentlemen, that England and Scotland are far more exposed to incendiary desolation than America in her present state can possibly be. We occupy a country with but few towns, and whose riches consist in land and annual produce. The two last can suffer but little, and that only within a very limited compass. In Britain it is otherwise. Her wealth lies chiefly in cities and large towns, the depositories of manufactures and fleets of merchantmen. There is not a nobleman's country seat but may be laid in ashes by a single person. Your own may probably contribute to the proof. In short, there is no evil which cannot be returned when you come to incendiary mischief. The ships in the Thames may certainly be as easily set on fire as the temporary bridge was few years ago, yet of that affair no discovery was ever made, and the loss you would sustain by such an event executed at the proper season is infinitely greater than any you can inflict. The East India House and the bank neither are nor can be secure from this sort of destruction, and as Dr. Price justly observes, a fire at the latter would bankrupt the nation. It has never been the custom of France and England, when at war, to make those havocs on each other, because the ease with which they could retaliate rendered it as impolitic as if each had destroyed his own. But think not, gentlemen, that our distance secures you, or our invention fails us. We can much easier accomplish such a point than any nation in Europe. We talk the same language, dress in the same habit, and appear with the same manners as yourselves. We can pass from one part of England to another unsuspected. Many of us are as well acquainted with the country as you are, and should you impolitically provoke us, you will most assuredly lament the effects of it. Mischiefs of this kind require no army to execute them. The means are obvious, and the opportunities unguardable. 
I hold up a warning to our senses, if you have any left, and, quote, to the unhappy people likewise whose affairs are committed to you, end quote. Footnote, General Sir H. Clinton's letter to Congress. I call not with the rancor of an enemy, but the earnestness of a friend on the deluded people of England, lest between your blunders and theirs they sink beneath the evils contrived for us. He who lives in a glass house, says a Spanish proverb, should never begin throwing stones. This gentleman is exactly your case, and you must be the most ignorant of mankind, or suppose us so, not to see on which side the balance of accounts will fall. There are many other modes of retaliation, which for several reasons I choose not to mention. But be assured of this, that the instant you put your threat into execution, a counter-blow will follow it. If you openly profess yourselves savages, it is high time we should treat you as such, and if nothing but distress can recover you to reason, to punish will become an office of charity. While your fleet lay last winter in the Delaware, I offered my service to the Pennsylvania Navy Board, then at Trenton, as one who would make a party with them, or any four or five gentlemen, on an expedition down the river to set fire to it, and though it was not then accepted, nor the thing personally attempted, it is more than probable that your own folly will provoke a much more ruinous act. Say not when mischief is done that you had not warning, and remember that we do not begin it, but mean to repay it. Thus much for your savage and impolitic threat. In another part of your proclamation you say, quote, But if the honors of a military life are become the object of the Americans, let them seek those honors under the banners of their rightful sovereign, and in fighting the battles of the United British Empire against our late mutual and natural enemies. End quote. Surely, the union of absurdity with madness was never marked in more distinguishable lines than these. Your rightful sovereign, as you call him, may do well enough for you, who dare not inquire into the humble capacities of the man. But we, who estimate persons and things by their real worth, cannot suffer our judgments to be so imposed upon. And unless it is your wish to see him exposed, it ought to be your endeavor to keep him out of sight. The less you have to say about him, the better. We have done with him, and that ought to be answer enough. You have been often told so. Strange that the answer must be so often repeated. You go a-bagging with your king as with a brat, or with some unsaleable commodity you were tired of, and though everybody tells you no, no, still you keep hawking him about. But there is one that will have him in a little time, and as we have no inclination to disappoint you of a customer, we bid nothing for him. The impertinent folly of the paragraph that I have just quoted deserves no other notice than to be laughed at and thrown by, but the principle on which it is founded is detestable. We are invited to submit to a man who has attempted by every cruelty to destroy us, and to join him in making war against France, who is already at war against him for our support. Can Bedlam, in concert with Lucifer, form a more mad and devilish request? Were it possible a people could sink into such apostasy, they would deserve to be swept from the earth like the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. The proposition is an universal affront to the rank which man holds in the creation, and an indignity to him who placed him there. It supposes him made up without a spark of honor and under no obligation to God or man. 
what sort of men or christians must you suppose the americans to be who after seeing their most humble petitions insultingly rejected the most grievous laws passed to distress them in every quarter an undeclared war let loose upon them and indians and negroes invited to the slaughter who after seeing their kinsmen murdered their fellow-citizens starved to death in prisons and their houses and property destroyed and burned who after the most serious appeals to heaven the most solemn abjuration by oath of all government connected with you and the most heartfelt pledges and protestations of faith to each other and who after soliciting the friendship and entering into alliances with other nations should at last break through all these obligations civil and divine by complying with your horrid and infernal proposal ought we ever after to be considered as a part of the human race or ought we not rather to be blotted from the society of mankind and become a spectacle of misery to the world but there is something in corruption which like a jaundiced eye transfers the colour of itself to the object it looks upon and sees everything stained and impure for unless you were capable of such conduct yourselves you would never have supposed such a character in us the offer fixes your infamy it exhibits you as a nation without faith with whom oaths and treaties are considered as trifles and the breaking them as a breaking of a bubble regard to decency or to rank might have taught you better or pride inspired you though virtue could not there is not left a step in the degradation of character to which you can now descend you have put your foot on the ground floor and the key of the dungeon is turned upon you that the invitation may want nothing of being a complete monster you have thought proper to finish it with an assertion which has no foundation either in fact or philosophy and as mr ferguson your secretary is a man of letters and has made civil society his study and published a treatise on the subject i address this part to him in the close of the paragraph which i last quoted france is styled the natural enemy of england and by way of lugging us into some strange idea she is styled the late mutual and natural enemy of both countries i deny that she ever was the natural enemy of either and that there does not exist in nature such a principle the expression is an unmeaning barbarism and wholly unphilosophical when applied to beings of the same species let their station in the creation be what it may we have a perfect idea of a natural enemy when we think of the devil because the enmity is perpetual unalterable and unabatable it admits neither of peace truce or treaty consequently the warfare is eternal and therefore it is natural but man with man cannot arrange in the same opposition their quarrels are accidental and equivocally created they become friends or enemies as the change of temper or the cast of interest inclines them the creator of man did not constitute them the natural enemy of each other he has not made any one order of being so even wolves may quarrel still they herd together if any two nations are so then must all nations be so otherwise it is not nature but custom and the offence frequently originates with the accuser england is as truly the natural enemy of france as france is of england and perhaps more so separated from the rest of europe she has contracted an unsocial habit of manners and imagines in others the jealousy she creates in herself never long satisfied with peace she supposes the discontent universal 
and buoyed up with her own importance, conceives herself the only object pointed at. The expression has been often used, and always with a fraudulent design, for when the idea of a natural enemy is conceived, it prevents all other inquiries, and the real cause of the quarrel is hidden in the universality of the conceit. Men start at the notion of a natural enemy, and ask no other question. The cry obtains credit like the alarm of a mad dog, and is one of those kind of tricks which by operating on the common passions secures their interest through their folly. But we, sir, are not to be thus imposed upon. We live in a large world, and have extended our ideas beyond the limits and prejudices of an island. We hold out the right hand of friendship to all the universe, and we conceive that there is a sociality in the manners of France which is much better disposed to peace and negotiation than that of England, and until the latter becomes more civilized she cannot expect to live long at peace with any power. Her common language is vulgar and offensive, and children suck in with their milk the rudiments of insult. The arm of Britain, the mighty arm of Britain, Britain that shakes the earth to its center and its poles, the scourge of France, the terror of the world, that governs with a nod and pours down vengeance like a god. This language neither makes a nation great or little, but it shows a savageness of manners and has a tendency to keep national animosity alive. The entertainments of the stage are calculated to the same end, and almost every public exhibition is tinctured with insult. Yet England is always in dread of France, terrified at the apprehension of an invasion, suspicious of being outwitted in a treaty, and privately cringing, though she is publicly offending. Let her therefore reform her manners and do justice, and she will find the idea of a natural enemy to be only a phantom of her own imagination. Little did I think at this period of the war to see a proclamation which could promise you no one useful purpose whatever and tend only to expose you. One would think that you were just awakened from a four years' dream and knew nothing of what had passed in the interval. Is this a time to be offering pardons or renewing the long-forgotten subject of charters and taxation? Is it worth your while, after every force has failed you, to retreat under the shelter of argument and persuasion? Or can you think that we, with nearly half your army prisoners and in alliance with France, are to be begged or threatened into submission by a piece of paper? But as commissioners at a hundred pounds sterling a week each, you conceive yourselves bound to do something, and the genius of ill-fortune told you that you must write. For my own part, I have not put pen to paper these several months. Convinced of our superiority by the issue of every campaign, I was inclined to hope that that which all the rest of the world now see would become visible to you, and therefore felt unwilling to ruffle your temper by fretting you with repetitions and discoveries. There have been intervals of hesitation in your conduct, from which it seemed a pity to disturb you, and a charity to leave you to yourselves. You have often stopped, as if you intended to think, but your thoughts have ever been too early or too late. There was a time when Britain disdained to answer or even hear a petition from America. That time is past, and she in her turn is petitioning our acceptance. We now stand on a higher ground and offer her peace, and the time will come when she, perhaps in vain, will ask it from us. The latter case is as probable as the former ever was. 
she cannot refuse to acknowledge our independence with greater obstinacy than she before refused to repeal her laws and if america alone could bring her to the one united with france she will reduce her to the other there is something in obstinacy which differs from every other passion whenever it fails it never recovers but either breaks like iron or crumbles sulkily away like a fractured arch most other passions have their periods of fatigue and rest their suffering and their cure but obstinacy has no resource and the first wound is mortal you have already begun to give it up and you will from the natural construction of the vice find yourselves both obliged and inclined to do so if you look back you see nothing but loss and disgrace if you look forward the same scene continues and the close is an impenetrable gloom you may plan and execute little mischiefs but are they worth the expense they cost you or will such partial evils have any effect on the general cause your expedition to egg harbor will be felt at a distance like an attack upon a hen roost and expose you in europe with a sort of childish frenzy is it worth while to keep an army to protect you in writing proclamations or to get once a year into winter quarters possessing yourselves of towns is not conquest but convenience and in which you will one day or other be trepanned your retreat from philadelphia was only a timely escape and your next expedition may be less fortunate it would puzzle all the politicians in the universe to conceive what you stay for or why you should have stayed so long you are prosecuting a war in which you confess you have neither object nor hope and that conquest could it be effected would not repay the charges in the meanwhile the rest of your affairs are running to ruin and a european war kindling against you in such a situation there is neither doubt nor difficulty the first rudiments of reason will determine the choice for if peace can be procured with more advantages than even a conquest can be obtained he must be an idiot indeed that hesitates but you are probably buoyed up by a set of wretched mortals who having deceived themselves are cringing with the duplicity of a spaniel for a little temporary bread those men will tell you just what you please it is their interest to amuse in order to lengthen out their protection they study to keep you amongst them for that very purpose and in proportion as you disregard their advice and grow callous to their complaints they will stretch into improbability and season their flattery the higher characters like these are to be found in every country and every country will despise them signed common sense end of the crisis number six by thomas paine recording by ernst schnell